the ideas of systemic racism and systems thinking are not inherently different. This is High Tech High Unboxed. I'm Alec Patton. In this episode, Stacey Callier, head of the Center for Research on Equity and Innovation at the High Tech High Graduate School of Education, is interviewing Eva Mejia. Eva is Chief Program and Strategy Officer at Big Picture Learning, which is an international network of over 65 schools committed to putting students at the center of their own learning. They're also just really, really cool schools. Now, Stacy and Eva first met when Eva was Director of Networked Improvement Science for the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching, which pioneered the use of continuous improvement and improvement science in education. Before we get to the interview, I want to give you a brief glossary of terms you'll hear in this episode that might be new to you. First, an AIM statement is a brief statement that a team writes explaining what their improvement is trying to accomplish. Next, a driver diagram is a visual representation of the factors that the team believes will drive improvement. In other words, the AIM statement shows the destination and the driver diagram shows what the team believes needs to change in order to get there. And there's one person I need to tell you about. Eva's going to mention Deming, and she's talking about W. Edwards Deming. He was a 20th century management theorist whose ideas about improvement transformed Toyota, the Japanese car company, after they adopted them. And today, he's probably the single most influential writer on what we now call improvement science. Okay, let's get into it. So you are the chief program and strategy officer at Big Picture Learning, but I first met you when you were a director of networked improvement science for the Carnegie Foundation. And I wanted to reach out to you because I was in a recent meeting with you when you introduced yourself as someone super passionate about integrating improvement science and equity, which is something I'm also super passionate about. So I'm really looking forward to this conversation. Good. Well, thank you for having me. Uh, In my mind, that's the only type of improvement science I'm interested in doing. So uh, I'm, I'm glad to be here and to get to dig in some of these questions. Awesome. Just to help us get grounded in who you are, can you share with us your identity markers and how they inform how you show up in the world and in your work? I'm happy to name them. And also, I will also name that I'm much more than the identity markers. And that's, that's part of the tension, I think. But as far as some of the ones that describe me is I am Mexican. So I grew up in Tijuana, very proud of being from Tijuana. And of course, then that makes me an immigrant to the U.S., also makes me Latina. I am cisgender and able-bodied. And I think those are some of the, the big ones. Um, and how it impacts, I mean, in some ways, I have no no choice over. <laughs> I, that's what I am. I don't have a something to compare it to. But one of the things that I think has really shaped my worldview is this uh, growing up on both sides of the border and the border sort of the frontera thinking and, um, and frankly, growing up with seeing it as division and um, not so positive, mostly from the San Diego side, not so positive towards Mexico or Tijuana. And so for me, I'm very proud of where I come from, and it's been actually a huge source of innovation and and insight, because as I've grown up, what I've realized is that borders are actually super, super interesting places of innovation, because it's these merging of cultures. So I've found that that worldview really stays with me, and it's been actually a source of strength. So a lot of times when I see sort of divided worlds, I know how to bridge and navigate and actually see that as a source of innovation. I also, I know what it's like to be othered and to come from a place that you love and that you see a lot of beauty, but that other people don't, don't see that. And so I hold that dear to my heart and it's important. Thank you so much for sharing that, Eva. Yeah. 
So can you tell us a little bit about how did you come to improvement science? Yeah, I and I and I should start by saying I came to Carnegie mostly because of network side, less improvement science and more the networks. How I got into sort of coaching for data is is actually kind of the that was the gateway drug. That was the beginning. And what it was is um, the beginning of my career was I was a social worker and I did work around student services and working with community members, volunteers, kind of like the whole support uh, circle around schools and students. And um, I didn't go into teaching because I just didn't feel like there was anything in the K-12 space that I could be excited about. And of course, this is, I didn't know there was places like Big Picture or High Tech. And so I did uh, support services and I, I started a master's degree to become a school counselor. And I was like, I'm done figuring out what I want to do when I grow up. This is what I will do. I'm sort of giving up on systems. Like I will, you know, support what I, who I can in this circle, right, that I work with. And while I was there, I met a professor who was the first time that I had a professor that lived in Chula Vista that was Latino, that knew the border, knew uh, the issues that I cared about and was doing really awesome work. And so he mentored me and we were doing work, which now I would name human-centered design. So we were using focus groups to inform student success initiatives in community colleges And the first time I saw us present focus group data to community college deans and department heads, and when they started to say, oh, that's what's going on. Yeah, we can fix that and really start to solve things based on what students needed. I was like, wait, what is that thing? Because, you know, when I was a social worker, it's like I, you know, I I was, I could be, um, sort of brushed off as being like, oh, well, you're the bleeding heart or, you know, you're just thinking this way or that way. And now it's like, wait, so you put it into PowerPoints and somehow like people listen. I was like, what is that thing, right? Um, So that's kind of how I got into it. It wasn't because I was any kind of like stats nerd or anything like that. It was frankly, because I saw the power of it. It was this language that could bridge students and, and the humans that I cared about and the folks that were running the systems. And so that's how I got into it. And then I was mentored by that professor and another professor who did hardcore stats. And so he was like, well, you can come to my classes for free. And so that's how I started doing statistics by auditing classes and checking them out. I hear a lot of talk where it's almost like people see themselves in two different camps (laughs) where there's like, we're the improvement camp, we're the equity camp. And there's kind of this idea that they're two separate things. And I'd love just to hear your perspective on how do you make sense of those camps? What's the intersection of the two? And if there even are camps, what do they need to learn from each other? Whenever I hear that, it breaks my heart because like I said, I I wouldn't do any other kind of improvement science work if it wasn't for equity reasons. Like I said, it's not, I'm not naturally drawn to uh, hardcore statistics or or any of this data analysis kind of stuff. So yeah, so fundamentally, I think there's more of a historical, social, political reason why we ended up with these camps. And if people are seeing it that way, I don't think it has to be because of the topics. Like the improvement science is not inherently white-centered, I don't think. And so it's more about who's using it, who's drawn to it, where it goes, that it has that. But to make more clear, like why I see that intersection is because all all the aims and all, all those tools, like the purpose is to make things better for folks of color, for people in marginalized communities, for, you know, low-income students. And I think that the tools are, are super helpful. Like 
you know, the tools tell you can, can illuminate things that sometimes we are uncomfortable, right? So uh, a great way that people like to start equity conversations as sort of a tried and true is to make data visible, right? You disaggregate and all of a sudden you're like, oh, we felt really good about our things. But when we look at the variation, turns out we have the same issues that every other place has, right? The ideas of systemic racism and systems thinking are not inherently different. And so I think in some ways, sometimes, I mean, the half empty, half full is like maybe people that would not be drawn to the equity conversations or like starting from a race conversation is like a little too much. Maybe they would feel more comfortable through like coming in from the data side, like maybe it allows for different entry points. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. We've, I feel like we've come to this place in our own networks where we're like, no, 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 we can't do the systems work unless you're willing to do the self work <laughs> and like the interpersonal work. Well, I mean, you can approach it from a like, you have to do the self work, or you can also like straight up approach it from improvement science. Like, you just don't have the expertise at the table for the thing you're trying to do. Mm-hmm. And we just talk a lot about the types of knowledge that are required. And we would push back on that. It's not just about research knowledge and content knowledge. So we need the teachers in the room that know what it's like to teach young people um, how to read and who have done it for a long time. We need the school folks to tell us about what it looks like in the environment of a school. Well, we also need the expertise of what it's like to be a middle school boy or to walk around as a black man in America. Like, I don't know what that's like. I don't experience it on an everyday basis. And so that is expertise, crucial expertise that you need in the room. So it doesn't even have to be a, like a conversation of like, you have to do the personal work. It's just, you can also take it from a very technical, like you just don't have the knowledge. The other thing that people did is um, sometimes they want to work on on an issue that has to do with uh, black and brown students but their driver diagram and their tools do not mention race at all. And, um, and I've always felt like that's not right. That doesn't make sense. I think that sometimes it's a philosophical answer. Like people say, well, what is that? Like the tide that rises all boats. So like if, you know, good pedagogy or good support will improve for everybody. So like, let's do that. And Sometimes it's philosophical belief. Sometimes it's also political. Like you can't say that you're putting resources specifically to support some students and more than others. But I actually, in the conversation we were in last, I straight up asked Don Berwick and provost. And I asked him, I was like, do you think that you can have an aim that is about race or that is about a, a particular population and have a driver diagram that doesn't aim that? And they were like, no, absolutely not. Which is funny because in education, I feel like it's more debated. And it was interesting to get these two improvement gurus to be like, no, absolutely not. You can't. Right. That's a perfect segue to our next question, which was when I think about improvement for equity and what drew me to improvement as a framework for learning and collective action, it's this idea that's when it's done really well, it actually requires a fundamental shift in who has power and who's seen as having valuable expertise and perspective to offer. To your point, it's about engaging people across the system, including the students and families that we're most like trying to serve. So I'd love just to hear your thoughts on like, how do you see power showing up in positive and not so positive ways in how improvement is rolling out in education? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you hit right on it. The power is always an issue and it's always in the room, right? 
And there are ways that improvement science work can be done without disrupting power structures that then are not going to lead to fundamental change. So the example of having an improvement team that has no expertise or has limited expertise around um, the folks you're trying to serve, that you didn't change power. You didn't change what expertise is in the room. You didn't change who's there. In fact, you can have young people in the room and still not change the power and have it not be questioned. So power absolutely has to be addressed. And in fact, some of the writings from Deming were about that. Like a lot of his management was about connecting decision-making closer to the person that that has the expertise. Um, And so the whole like having um, a string to pull to stop the assembly line or to have teams of nurses uh, make decisions and not have to go to doctors or wait for somebody from above that is actually more separate to make decisions. So that's embedded in there. And so similarly, I think to do good equity-centered improvement work, you are shifting power. And that makes us uncomfortable because a lot of times those of us that are in roles, we get paid to do this. That's that's power. And we, we have degrees, right? Like everybody that's, it's kind of a problem where everybody is trying to improve education was able to figure out how to get a college degree. And so whether we liked it or not, whether schooling SCAR does or not, like we figured out how to do it. And that is its own limitation. So that's, that's kind of like about the who and the roles and, and the power and decision-making. The other big one is choosing problems and, and the framing of problems doesn't go questioned. So one that a lot of people know about is sort of the framing around the achievement gap, right? That is a type of framing that somebody decided. And there's visualizations. Tony Bright used to tell me that when you create your visualization, you're basically deciding what you want people to be thinking and how you want them to be thinking about that. So when you have a graph that is done in a certain way and it compares everybody else to white students, the gap is about closing the gap, therefore making it more like where white students are. You've centered white students. If you centered the problem around getting closer to whiteness, whether you wanted to or not, whether it was intentional or not, you've done that. So there's a lot of choice in how things are framed and where efforts are put. And are you blaming the students, right? There's a lot of benevolent improvement science where we're like, oh, we really wanna help students navigate and be resilient and let's work on their sense of belonging. And sometimes I'm like, well, we don't belong. I can tell you, I didn't belong in any of the places where I went to school. Like I didn't didn't have a sense of belonging because it didn't exist. (laughs) I had to find the pockets. And to be honest, I don't know that I wanna belong to, you know, white supremacy culture. I don't. So I don't, I don't want support in helping me belong to that. I probably need to code. I've had to code switch and figure out how to make it through systems, but that's, that's very different. So the framing of the problem, the framing of the solution, those are big sources of power that often go unquestioned. If all the solutions are about the people we're trying to help making changes, then that that one really hurts because it's like, you're inherently saying that like, whether you want to or not, that the one that needs to change in the problem lies with the young person. And that one, that's just hard. It's hard to see. It's also hard for me when people don't see that it's a problem. I love your term of benevolent improvement science, because I think it so perfectly captures this idea of like, we're going to do for rather than with. And I'm curious, have you seen examples in networks or even just like small little moments where you feel like, okay, like this 
this is improvement science that truly like engages students and families as partners in the work. Mm-hmm. Can you describe any moments like that and what that actually looked like? I appreciate that you downgraded it to moments because I think it's, it is kind of like balance. It's moments and, and places where we, we get it more right and not necessarily like, this is the gold standard. This place does it and figures it out all the time because, you know, since we're swimming in this racist society, well, the racism gets in all the time and you kind of shoo it back out. <laughs> so one of the moments that I remember when I was doing focus groups was the students told us that they, this is in community colleges. They told us that they get their financial aid check the second week because their registration has to be finalized or something. And so if I get my financial aid check the second week of school, then the earliest I can buy my books is about the second or third week of school. So every semester structurally, I'm starting two weeks behind in the reading. And it's like, it's sort of like, what? No brainer. Um, And that was one of the moments that I remember presenting that data and having folks from the financial aid office say like, oh, wait, what? Like, because often systems like financial aid doesn't really think about curriculum or doesn't talk necessarily in that way. And, you know, second week isn't that bad. It's like you're getting your money. But you, you ask a professor, are you okay with people not having the books until the second week? Like, that's absolutely wrong. And so the fact that they were like, oh, we need to talk about that and, and shift that. That's kind of one example. And that wasn't even, that's focus group, right? The, the students weren't at the table. The other one is one of my favorite design workshops that I went to. They had us work on a, a project for a nonprofit. And they brought folks that were involved with their nonprofit as clients, users, and and staff. And they did a, a really good job of both including them as a as a panel and a and experts. But then they they dispersed them throughout all the tables and they were resources and they were there to design with us. And so Quite frankly, it was a really good lesson for folks to be uncomfortable and and have to see them as peers and actually experts because they just shared with us their expertise. So including people, um, and of course, that's sort of a tried and true move from big picture. Like we always bring students and to include them and to really push yourself to how far, because, you know, we all have... um, beliefs about what people can and can't do. It's like, well, yeah, but parents aren't going to know how to read these graphs. And so if we're going to look at data, then like, maybe we shouldn't have them for that part. Well, why do we have to do it based on the graphs, right? Like, let's question the task as well, and sort of not have the methods. And that's, that's the one part that I worry that it is exclusionary, not by design, but by default. Like we used to talk about it, it's like if people have to know some pretty hardcore statistics to get into the room, then you're already limiting things. So I think that it's a balance between there's a science to improvement science and there's there's a lot of expertise around networks. So it's it's not common sense. Sometimes people will say like, oh, yeah, this is like common sense. And it's not. There's there's definitely a, a boost of knowledge there. And also we can't get so in love with the tools that they become exclusionary. So that's a hard part. Yeah. Thanks for that. I want to dig into a little bit systems thinking and just kind of the origins of improvement science, because they're really rooted in systems thinking, like the work of Deming and a lot of other mostly white men and, Mm -hmm. you know, initially applied in industry, then healthcare, now education, And a lot of the authors and leaders of improvement, as you noted, like are white. And so 
like on our team, we've been thinking a lot about like, what are the shifts that need to happen to actually move toward a more inclusive version of improvement science that addresses equity in a real way? And I think you've been touching on this already, but is there anything you would add to that? Absolutely. I mean, I would start by questioning the premise that the knowledge comes from white men. I think that they wrote about it and they systematized it and taught it. But I think a lot of these, this knowledge did not originate with them. And so, so I think that's, that's a good one to question if you're going to question, start there. For example, Peter Senge, huge um, expert in sort of the, the father systems thinking or modern. Uh, I went to a workshop with him a couple years ago. And he was talking a lot about meditation and mindfulness and being centered and energy and groups and circles. In fact, somebody quoted him that he did a circle practice. And then I heard later like, oh yeah, like Peter Senge's like thing. And I was so upset because I was like, that's not him. And he, and when I went to the workshop, he, did, he didn't credit it to himself. He, he explained where he learned it from which was from being in, in a native community. And so he, he's open about his sources, but he's an MIT professor. He's a guru. Like, you know, we, we know that. We know that systematically we attribute things to, to white men more than we do people of color. In fact, a lot of the things that I was drawing on for networks and, and building trust for that collaboration were really from organizing and community building. And quite frankly, I also draw a lot on my like history. Like I think about like the storytelling in my culture and my family. And when I think about, for me, I'm always merging sort of the concepts that I read in school with also experiences that I have. When I think about sense of belonging or like group cohesion or how a, um, a community become community trust and all those things, I'm also making sense of it in terms of like, how, how do I know that I am part of my family and how do I feel connected to people that I never met? Well, that's because of the storytellers in my family that the stories come with lessons and humans have been gathering and doing things together forever. (laughs) That knowledge is there and there's a lot of places to get it. It's just not called improvement science or networks. I so appreciate that distinction and push Eva, because (laughs) it, it is kind of, I mean, when I step back, I'm like, wait, it's not like white guys had a had ownership over like the five whys or like asking why to understand root causes or like get at, I mean, there are lots of cultures and places that are really great at surfacing multiple explanations and narratives for understanding a problem. So I really appreciate that distinction of separating kind of the knowledge from how the knowledge gets packaged and by who. I mean, sometimes as a, as a coach of improvement, I, I used to do that. It's like, because you walk in the room, don't forget the things you already knew, right? Like sometimes it happens also with teachers. It's like when we're talking about coaching other adults, do utilize what you already know about coaching and teaching and pedagogy. You kind of have both extremes. You have people that are like, yeah, yeah, this is already what we knew. And they like take what they already had and they put an improvement science label on it and they miss out on the richness of learning new tools and a body of knowledge. And then you also have the other extreme where people sort of like are like, okay, well, this is new. And they sort of think that they should start blank slate. And I, and I always used to be like, you know how to create group cohesion. Like, let's not call it group cohesion. You know how to set up a party. You know how to set up a potluck. And like, that was kind of something that I think I'm known for is like, I always make a lot of analogies 
I talk a lot about like communities of practice and networks. And it's like, when is it a potluck? When is it like a, a shared cooking experience or something? Just because it, it is common sense. Like it, it can't stay in this sort of ivory tower where only certain people, it, that by its definition is exclusionary. Yeah. What do you think needs to happen to bring it out of the ivory tower a little more? Giving power to a larger group of more diverse group of people to to do the work and also to make it make sense that, again, that like you don't have to have a degree in statistics, um, which I don't think you do, but that we get better at teaching it and teaching the core, but really teaching it. Because I think sometimes we want to do that ex- that inclusion, but we we fall on that. It's already things you already know. No, it's not. I, I joke that like my second doctorate was being at Carnegie because I learned a whole lot at Harvard. And then at Carnegie, it was like, yeah, that's cute. But like, we got a whole other thing we're building. So like, catch up. And so they, there's real knowledge and expertise there. And frankly, like as a creative problem solver, like it gave me a whole different way of thinking about things that stays with me, whether I'm using the tools or not. It really fundamentally changed my habits, my my ways of thinking, my ways of approaching things in a way that has access to power. It really is access to power, not in the societal power way that we've been talking, but access to like my own internal power, my own sense of efficacy. So, so it's not a water it down so other people can use it. It's like get better at teaching it so that more people can use it. Um, one of the practices that I do often about most things is I try to explain it to my parents and I explain to my parents in Spanish. And part of that is because I, I'm literally not speaking the same language. So I can't rely on the buzzwords or some of the things that become commonplace. And, and I'm talking to a real human about them. So I think that anybody that I think is listening to to this podcast and your work is like, remember to keep it like making sense and not not take the humanity out of it, both in the tools and the type of work and the practice that you're doing with young people is like, these tools should help us be more human rather than take the humanity out. Hatakai Unboxed is hosted and edited by me, Alec Patton. Our theme music is by Brother Herschel. A huge thank you to Stacey Callier and Eva Mejia for this week's episode. Check out the show notes for further reading about Eva's work and about some of the people she mentioned in the interview. Thanks for listening.